We continue with the brief for the United States in opposition in Fisher v. United States. Argument Petitioners renew their contention that the obstruction charges against them should be dismissed before trial, on the theory that their violent conduct in disrupting a joint session of Congress convened to certify the results of the 2020 presidential election did not violate USC Section 1512C2. That contention does not warrant further review, particularly given the interlocutory posture of these cases. The decision below is correct and does not conflict with any decision of this court. To the extent that petitioners seek review of any question concerning the mens rea element for Section 1512C, any such question is not properly presented here. Neither of the lower courts squarely addressed that element, and it would not provide a basis for sustaining the pretrial dismissal of the obstruction counts. The petition for writs of certiorari should be denied. 1. As a threshold matter, any review by this court is unwarranted at this time because these cases are in an interlocutory posture. The district court granted petitioners' pretrial motions to dismiss a single section 1512c2 count against each of them. The government took interlocutory appeals, and the Court of Appeals reversed the orders of dismissal and remanded for further proceedings consistent with its opinion. The government is prepared to proceed to trial and to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that petitioners corruptly obstructed, influenced, or impeded the joint session on January 6th or attempted to do so in violation of Section 1512C2. Those proceedings should be allowed to occur before any further review. The interlocutory posture of a case ordinarily alone furnishes sufficient ground for the denial of a petition for a writ of certiorari. In criminal cases in particular, this court routinely denies petitions seeking interlocutory review of issues that may be raised after a final judgment, if the defendant is ultimately convicted. The core question that petitioners seek to present, whether their conduct falls within the scope of Section 1512c2, would be particularly ill-suited for further review because the parties disagree about the conduct at issue. For example, Lang suggests that his prosecution implicates the application of Section 1512c2 to individuals who did no more than speak out at a protest that evolved into a dynamic conflict. But the indictment alleges that he assaulted six Metropolitan Police Department officers, caused bodily injury to one of them, and engaged in physical violence with a bat and shield in a restricted area of the capital. The government is accordingly prepared to prove at trial that Lang pushed, kicked, and punched officers while inside the capital for nearly two hours. The government's evidence will include an interview of Lang the day after the attack 
in which he bragged about fighting officers face-to-face while wearing a gas mask, said that it was war and was no protest, and claimed to have been on a mission to have the Capitol building and to stop this presidential election from being stolen. The government is likewise prepared to prove that Miller and Fisher actively took part in a violent occupation of the Capitol, disrupting the joint session of Congress, and that each made inculpatory statements before and after the riot. In dismissing the Section 1512C2 counts before trial, the district court concluded that the indictments failed to give petitioners sufficient notice of the charges against them. But petitioners have largely abandoned any theory about lack of pretrial notice. At bottom, their contention is that Section 1512C2 does not prohibit what they did on January 6th, and that contention is, at best, premature. If petitioners' scope of the statute question remains live after further proceedings on remand, petitioners could raise that question along with any other issues in a single petition following the entry of final judgment. Petitioners do not identify any analogous circumstances in which this court has granted interlocutory review. Instead, they invoke decisions arising from final judgment after a trial. Any review of the question presented here should likewise await further proceedings which will provide additional legal and factual development and which could ultimately be resolved in petitioners' favor, mooting their current claims. 2. In any event, the decision below is correct, does not conflict with any decision of this court or another court of appeals, and does not otherwise warrant further review. A. As the Court of Appeals recognized the statutory text, structure, context, and history, all refute petitioners' cramped, document-focused interpretation of Section 1512C2. Section 1512C contains two separately enumerated paragraphs defining different crimes— Paragraph 1 states that a person who corruptly alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record document or other object, or attempts to do so, with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in an official proceeding, commits a federal crime. Paragraph 2, in turn, states that a person who corruptly otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so, also commits a federal crime. The commonplace dictionary meaning of the word otherwise is in a different manner. Accordingly, giving the statute its natural reading, Section 1512C2 prohibits corruptly obstructing an official proceeding in a different way or manner than the acts of document alteration, destruction, and concealment targeted in Section 1512C1. 
That understanding of the relationship between the two provisions is confirmed by the differing language that Congress used in each. Section 1512C1 comprises two paired lists. A set of verbs, alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals, and objects, a record, document, or other object, that in any combination connote obstructive acts centered on written records and other tangible evidence. By its plain terms, Section 1512C2 is not so limited. Section 1512C2 encompasses conduct directed at the official proceeding itself, rather than at specific records or evidence that might be considered at the proceeding. As this court has explained, the words obstruct and impede naturally refer to anything that blocks, makes difficult, or hinders. It is therefore natural to say that a defendant obstructs an official proceeding by physically blocking it from occurring, as happened here when petitioners and others violently occupied the Capitol for several hours and thereby prevented the joint session of Congress from doing its work. Like similar language in other obstruction statutes, Section 1512C2 operates as a catch-all to cover otherwise obstructive behavior that might not constitute a more specific offense like document destruction, which is listed in C1. As the Court of Appeals recognized, that natural understanding of Section 1512C2 is not only apparent from the statute's text and structure, but is also consistent with the statute's development and history, which do not support an unstated limitation of Section 1512C2 to evidence impairment. Congress enacted Section 1512C in the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002, following the exposure of Enron's massive accounting fraud and revelations that the company's outside auditor, Arthur Anderson LLP, had systematically destroyed potentially incriminating documents. Although the particular gap in the U.S. Code implicated by that prosecution involved documentary evidence, it more broadly highlighted the need to ensure that the criminal code covered the myriad and impossible-to-anticipate ways in which an official proceeding might be obstructed. The provision of Sarbanes-Oxley enacting Section 1512C was accordingly entitled Tampering with a Record or Otherwise Impeding an Official Proceeding, thus reflecting Congress's desire to prohibit both document-focused misconduct and other means or ways of impeding an official proceeding. The relevant language was added in a floor amendment late in the legislative process and thus was discussed only in floor statements rather than committee reports. The Court of Appeals explained that, to the extent that such statements are useful here, they suggest that Section 1512C was intended to cover more than just document-related or evidence-impairment crimes. 
B. As Miller and Lang appear to recognize, the decision below does not conflict with the decision of any other court of appeals. And Fisher's suggestion that the Fourth and Tenth Circuits have limited Section 1512C2 to evidence-specific obstruction is not supported by the decisions that he cites. In United States v. Sutherland, 2019, the Fourth Circuit upheld a Section 1512C2 conviction for obstructing a grand jury investigation where the defendant had created and distributed false financial documents. Although the facts of the case involved document-related obstruction, the Fourth Circuit did not hold, and indeed would have had no occasion to hold, that Section 1512C2 is limited to such conduct. The defendant's principal contention was instead that he had not committed a violation of Section 1512C2 because he had caused the falsified documents to be transmitted to a prosecutor rather than to the grand jury itself. And in United States v. Gordon, 2013, the Tenth Circuit upheld a Section 1512C2 conviction involving the attempted falsification of documents, again without holding that the statute prohibits only such conduct. The rejection of the defendant's arguments in those cases does not indicate that either court would accept petitioner's arguments here. Fisher is also wrong to contend that other courts of appeals have limited the statute's reach to crimes of evidence impairment. As the D.C. Circuit explained below, Fisher's contention rests on taking the facts of those prior cases, all of which, like Sutherland and Gordon, upheld convictions under Section 1512c2, and treating them as having established the outer legal boundaries of the statutory prohibition, even though the relevant courts could not and did not decide that the statute would be inapplicable in circumstances like these. The D.C. Circuit was therefore correct to conclude that no other court of appeals has ever endorsed the construction that petitioners advocate. C. The decision below also does not conflict with relevant decisions of this court. Petitioners' asserted conflicts largely restate their own flawed merits arguments and do not warrant further review. Miller argues that the decision below is at cross-purposes with decisions of this court, rejecting improbably broad interpretations of criminal statutes. But none of the decisions that he invokes addressed a statute or conduct similar to the statute and conduct at issue here. And the court in those cases applied the same tools of statutory construction that the Court of Appeals employed below, text, structure, context, and history. That those tools supported giving Section 1512c2 its natural, broad reading here does not suggest any conflict between the decision below and this court's precedent. 
Fisher similarly errs in contending that the Court of Appeals failed to adhere to any relevant canons of construction. The court considered the canons that Fisher invokes and persuasively explained why they do not justify adopting his artificially narrow reading of Section 1512c2. For example, Fisher contends that the decision below fails to give effect to the whole text and renders other parts of Section 1512 surplusage. But the court explained that reading Section 1512c2 as limited to document-related obstruction would similarly render Section 1512c1 largely nugatory. The court also explained that surplusage concerns have little weight here because under any of the competing interpretations, there would still be numerous provisions in the obstruction statutes that would overlap with Section 1512c2 to some extent, a circumstance easily explained by the statutory history. Contrary to Fisher's assertion, the decision below is also fully consistent with Yates v. United States and Begay v. United States. In Yates, this court addressed a different obstruction statute which prohibits knowingly altering, destroying, mutilating, concealing, covering up, falsifying, or making a false entry in any record, document, or tangible object with the intent to impede, obstruct, or influence the investigation or proper administration of any matter within the jurisdiction of any department or agency of the United States. The court held that the term tangible object in section 1519 does not encompass fish because that phrase is limited in context to objects similar to records and documents, based in part on the proximity of those terms in a single list. For example, any record, document, or tangible object, and the related list of actions proscribed by the statute, for example, making a false entry, which one may do in a record, but not a fish. The statute at issue here is worded and structured quite differently. To the extent that Section 1512C contains language redolent of Section 1519, that language is limited to Section 1512C1, not at issue here, which pairs lists of verbs, like alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals, and nouns like a record, document, or other object. Section 1512c2, however, is broken out into a separate subsection, separated by a semicolon and the disjunctive term OR, and it contains its own list of verbs, like obstructs, influences, or impedes, all of which are directed at a single object, an official proceeding. That single object is not confined or connected to documents or other evidence, but is instead a defined term 
that encompasses a variety of proceedings. The Court of Appeals properly gave effect to that distinct and independent prohibition. As the Court of Appeals explained, Begay likewise does not support petitioner's effort to import implicit limits into Section 1512c2. The court there addressed the residual clause in the definition of violent felony in the Armed Career Criminal Act of 1984, or ACCA, which appended the phrase, quote, otherwise involves conduct that presents a serious potential risk of physical injury to another, unquote, to a series of four listed crimes that appeared before it without any section break. The court cited a dictionary definition of otherwise to mean in a different way or manner, which is the same definition that the Court of Appeals applied here. In the particular context of ACCA, the court concluded in Begay that the residual clause's reference to crimes that otherwise involve conduct presenting a serious risk of injury was best read to refer to crimes different in means or manner from those in the preceding list, but still similar in some respects, including by involving purposeful, violent, or aggressive conduct. As explained above, however, the term otherwise in section 1512c2 does not appear at the end of a list of terms with a common theme, but rather at the start of a separate and distinct criminal prohibition. And any potential relevance of Begay is further called into question by the court's subsequent decision holding the residual clause to be unconstitutionally vague, particularly in light of the otherwise clause as construed in Begay. D. Further review of the scope of Section 1512c2's actus reus requirement is especially unwarranted because petitioner's conduct would satisfy even the narrow evidence-focused definition that they and the dissent below advocate. As the indictments specify, the proceeding that petitioners disrupted was the certification proceeding mandated by the Electoral Count Act, and that act establishes procedures for addressing a specific type of evidence, namely, certificates of votes from each state. The act precisely described the official proceedings date, the 6th day of January, time, one o'clock in the afternoon on that day, and place, the Hall of the House of Representatives. It identified the required attendees, the Senate and House of Representatives shall meet in the Hall, and the presiding officer, the President of the Senate. And it instructed that the President of the Senate shall open all the certificates and papers purporting to be certificates of the electoral votes in the alphabetical order of the states, that those papers shall be handed as they are opened by the President of the Senate to specified tellers appointed on the part of the Senate and the House 
that the appointed tellers shall make a list of the votes as they shall appear from the said certificates. After having read the certificates in the presence and hearing of the two houses, and that members may object in writing. The Act further provided that, after the two houses had resolved any objections, the votes were to be counted, followed by a declaration of who has been elected president and vice president. And the Act stated that the joint session shall not be dissolved until the count of electoral votes shall be completed and the result declared. Preventing the members of Congress from validating the state certificates thus constitutes evidence-focused obstruction. Even on petitioners' narrow view, it would surely violate Section 1512c2 for a defendant to lock evidence in a vault that a fact-finder cannot access, thereby preventing the proceeding from occurring. And the conduct here was analogous. It prevented the elected government officials from accessing and counting the certificates of electoral votes as the Electoral Count Act requires. That hundreds of other defendants who occupied the Capitol did much the same thing is not a reason for further review in these cases. At a minimum, the government should be permitted to present its case to a jury and prove that petitioners obstructed a proceeding by, in part, preventing the relevant decision-makers from viewing the evidence at the time and place specified for that purpose. 3. Petitioners separately contend that the court should grant further review to address the corruptly mental state element necessary to prove a violation of Section 1512C. But these cases would be unsuitable vehicles in which to address the corruptly element. As petitioners acknowledge, neither the Court of Appeals nor the District Court squarely addressed that element, which was not the subject of any extensive briefing below. Petitioners' arguments on the corruptly element have also now been overtaken by the D.C. Circuit's decision in United States v. Robertson, 2023, which affirmed a final judgment of conviction in another prosecution based on the events at the Capitol on January 6, 2021. In that decision, the D.C. Circuit held that the jury could have found consistent with the district court's instructions, on a Section 1512c2 count, that Robertson acted corruptly based on evidence that he used felonious unlawful means to obstruct, impede, or influence the Electoral College vote certification. The court explained that the requirement that a defendant act corruptly is met by establishing that the defendant acted with a corrupt purpose or via independently corrupt means. And the court found sufficient evidence of corrupt means where the court's defendant's conduct broke the law in multiple ways, including by using violent force against a police officer. Even assuming that the Court of Appeals' definition of corruptly 
would warrant this court's review. This is not an appropriate vehicle for such review. That is particularly so because the issue would not be outcome determinative at this stage. The indictments in each of these three cases allege that the defendants corruptly obstructed, influenced, or impeded the joint session on January 6th, or attempted to do so. Petitioners do not explain why the indictments were required to allege anything more in order to apprise them of the essential facts constituting the offense charged. Addressing the corruptly element would therefore make no difference to the correct disposition of these interlocutory appeals, as illustrated by Judge Walker's acknowledgement that the pretrial dismissal of the Section 1512C counts was erroneous, even under his view. Further review is unwarranted. Conclusion The petitions for writs of certiorari should be denied. Respectfully submitted, Elizabeth B. Prelogger, Solicitor General, Nicole M. Argentieri, Acting Assistant Attorney General, James I. Pierce, Attorney, October 2023. We've come to the end of this brief. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.